It is great to be with you again for the third installment of this series uh, that uh, Zach talked about where, um, that he, when he introduced me. But we're, we're talking about the lessons that God taught me when I lost my first wife to cancer. I had been a, a pastor in Michigan uh, prior to moving out here. But subsequent to Tanya's death, I found that I just simply was not able to continue to carry the load. And I found that I had to step down from my pastoral ministry. So I ended up going back to school. I got a paralegal degree. I uh, moved out here to be uh, to Washington to be close to my parents and my sister who who live out here and uh, found a job as a financial manager for a fiduciary corporation, got remarried along the way. Uh, All of that happened in just two years time. So it's been uh, just a, a whirlwind ride for me. But uh, about three months after Tanya died, I took the boys to California to, uh, to see some of my family who weren't able to make it out to Michigan for Tanya's funeral. Um, so my boys are, uh, they're nine and five now. They were six and two at the time. And uh, one of the family members that we saw out in California was my grandmother. We call her Grammy. She just turned 104 yesterday, uh, but she was she was 101 at the time. Yeah, yeah, she's just an incredible woman. Um, and you know, when when Tanya and I got married, I never would have guessed that my Grammy would outlive my wife. But that's the way life is, isn't it? It's unpredictable. So visiting Grammy, I was I was thinking about the contrast. You know. Um, Here I was in the presence of one woman who had seen so many years and my heart and my mind were occupied thinking about another woman who had seen so few. And Grammy asked me, she said, do you ever get mad at God for, you know, making you go through all this? And I answered her, no, not really. And and I told her some of the things that I shared with you guys two weeks ago when I talked about the Jesus lesson. That God never promised us a life without suffering, but that he would be with us in our suffering. That if Jesus was the perfect son of God and he suffered terribly, then why should we expect to not have to go through hard times? And that I was running to God, not away from him. Because where could I ever find any hope or peace or joy other than in him? Where else could I go if I gave up on him? And then I told her some of the things that I shared with you last week in the friendship lesson. How encouraging it was to have people come alongside me who cared so much that they were willing to climb down into the pit with me to help me through this very difficult season of my life. And how I realized even more just how much I need those people. And this week I want to share with you the life lesson. So turn with me, if you would, in your Bibles to Psalm 90. This week we're going to con- um, this this next week we're going to conclude the series, but uh, these four lessons that that we're talking about are by no means the only four that uh, that I've learned through these experiences. But I did want to get to this one. I did want to make sure that this one made the the top four list because it is so vitally important. And I promise you, if you can learn it, 
it will change your life forever. So let's read from Psalm 90. A prayer of Moses, the man of God. Lord, you've been our dwelling place throughout all generations. Before the mountains were born, or you brought forth the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. You turn men back to dust, saying, Return to dust, O sons of men. For a thousand years in your sight are like a day that has just gone by, or like a watch in the night. You sweep men away in the sleep of death. They're like the new grass of the morning. Though in the morning it springs up new, by evening it's dry and withered. We are consumed by your anger and terrified by your indignation. You have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your presence. All our days pass away under your wrath. We finish our years with a moan. The length of our days is 70 years or 80 if we have the strength. Yet their span is but trouble and sorrow, for they quickly pass and we fly away. Who knows the power of your anger? For your wrath is as great as the fear that is due you. Teach us to number our days aright that we may gain a heart of wisdom. Relent, O Lord. How long will it be? Have compassion on your servants. Satisfy us in the morning with your unfailing love that we may sing for joy and be glad all our days. Make us glad for as many days as you have afflicted us, for as many years as we have seen trouble. May your deeds be shown to your servants, your splendor to their children. May the favor of the Lord our God rest upon us. Establish the work of our hands for us. Yes, establish the work of our hands. Not exactly a pick-me-up, is it? But there are some hard truths about life that are contained in this psalm that if we can accept them, it will go much better for us than trying to pretend that life isn't really this way. Because you see, when we pretend, we sort of set up our own universe in our minds that is in conflict with the real universe, the way the world actually is. And, and at some point, reality is going to come crashing in and it will smash our imaginary world and everything that we thought that we knew was true is lying in bits and pieces on the floor. And we don't, need, and, and we don't know where to even begin to start putting it back together again. That's no way to live. So I want to ask you to be brave with me and let's face up to the real challenges that real life presents to us. This is what Psalm 90 is telling us. So here's hard truth number one, which is that you don't know much. Certainly not as much as you think you do. This is one that we like to trot out um, when it's convenient for us. Like if it's going to get us out of something, we say, well, I can't know everything, right? But on the other hand, we like to think that, that we do know everything. Or at least we could know everything as soon as we Google it. And yet the reality is that we actually know very, very little and understand even less. 
For example, I, I don't know what you're thinking right now. I don't know the secret reasons for the choices that people make. I don't know how God formed the whole universe out of nothing. I don't know how big the universe actually is. I don't know if there's life on other planets. I don't know what my future holds. I don't know if I'll survive the day. But I like to act like I do know. And that's kind of odd, isn't it? It is, except that you do the same thing. We act like we know what other people are thinking. We like to think that we know the secret reasons for the choices that people make or what the future holds. We act like, of course, I'm going to survive the day. And the reality is, we don't know any of it. But there is someone who does. Lord, you have been our dwelling place throughout all generations. Before the mountains were born, or you brought forth the whole world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. When you look at the whole history of everything, the amount of time that we spend here on this ball of dirt is so tiny. It's just a blip, and then we're gone. That's why Moses, who wrote this psalm, says, We are like the new grass of the morning. In the morning it springs up new, but by evening it's dry and withered. It's just like that. Our experience covers such a tiny little bit of all that's ever happened in the history of the world. And then when you, <clears throat> when you consider how we're confined to being in one place at a time, and there's stuff going on all around the world in the lives of seven billion people. So even within our own time, we experience just a microscopic part of what's going on. Our perspective on life and what ought to happen and the way that things ought to be is so limited and so small. But God has been everywhere and He's seen everything and He knows everything and everyone down to the smallest detail, down to the most hidden thought. He knows it all. So you have us who know almost nothing. And then you have God who knows everything. So why do we try to act like we know everything? When the reality is we know almost nothing. And yet we pretend that we are experts on running a universe. As if God ought to consult us so that he can do his job better. You know what it is? It's, it's really about control. We want to know everything. We want to run the universe our way. We want to be God, essentially. It's the original temptation all the way back in the garden. It's Satan whispering in our ears, you can be like God. So just to bring this a little closer to home, do I wonder why all this has happened in my life. Do I wonder why God has, has brought me on this particular journey that he's brought me on? 
Well, sort of. Because I don't know. I don't know. But I don't, com- I don't expect to completely know this side of heaven. I'll just add that to all the other stuff that I don't know. And I'm okay with that. I don't have to know. Because I know that God knows. And that's enough for me. See, the hard truth is that we don't know everything. And our choice is to either fight against that or to accept it. We can demand an answer as if we should be able to know anything we want, or we can rest in knowing that there's a God who does know the answer and that we can trust him. Those are the choices that are put before us. And that's hard truth number one. Hard truth number two is that God is angry. Now, I want to qualify this just a bit um, because I don't want us to, to be confused about exactly what I'm saying. Because some of you have been taught that God is always angry or, or that his anger is the only part of him that we can know or understand. That he's just licking his chops, waiting to lower the boom on us. Uh, maybe some of you have seen, uh, there's an old far side cartoon where it says God is at his computer and there's a picture on the screen of a, of a guy walking down the sidewalk with a grand piano above his head and God has his finger poised right above the smite button, right? And he's just getting ready to smite this guy. And, and, the, the, and some of us have that idea of God, that that's who God is at his core. And, and that is a misunderstanding If you've been raised that way or you've been taught that way or you've come to understand God that way, I'm sorry because you weren't taught the truth. The primary attribute of God is not anger but love. But even so, His great love for us also generates a fierce anger. And in trying to correct one error, I don't want to make the opposite one. Just because God's primary attribute is love and not anger, it doesn't mean that He has no anger. In fact, just the opposite, his anger is rooted in his love. He's angry precisely because he loves. And God's anger and God's wrath doesn't get a lot of press these days, a lot of times. And so the other error that we often fall into is, is, that, is that God just loves us all the time, completely, and no matter what, and he does But he's also very angry with us. And those two are not mutually exclusive. I think the best way to help us understand this is to tie it to parenting. For those of you who are parents. The Bible talks about God as our heavenly father. And he loves us with a deep and passionate love of a good father. In fact, a perfect father. And that means that he's deeply interested in what we do, how we live, the choices that we make, the way that we treat people. He doesn't stand off far away, completely indifferent to us. I don't care what they do. That's the way a stranger operates, right? God's not a stranger. He's our father. So he's very interested in what we do. And being perfect and being a father, he's also given us guidance. And he's laid out for us in the Bible, exactly the the best way to live. He's given us wisdom and instruction. And he's saying, do this. Live this way. Walk in it. This is the right way to go about things. 
And yet every single one of us, like children often do, has said, you know what, God, you can take your commands and shove it. I'm doing this one my way. In fact, some of us have lived our whole lives that way. Every single moment of our lives have been in total opposition to everything that God desires and wants for us. And that infuriates God to no end. It's, it's not the disrespect. You know, his self-esteem is strong enough. He can handle our little tantrums. But it's the fact that he's given us the very best way to live, and we don't care. He's given us the way to find peace and joy and hope and purpose in everything that we long for, and then we ignore it. And then we gripe and whine at him when we don't have peace or joy or hope or purpose. See, he has the right to make the universe however he wants. It's his universe. If you don't like it, go get your own universe. But we live in his universe. And then there are all these little people that he gave life to complaining about the life that he gave them when they're not even going about living their life the way that he says to. And he hates our sin. He hates it. Sin has completely screwed up this world that he gave us. In fact, everything that you complain to God about is rooted ultimately in sin. Either your sin or somebody else's. Your parents didn't love you. They didn't support you or encourage you growing up. Well, that's a sin. That's their sin. Your husband cheated on you. That's a sin. Your friend betrayed you. That's a sin. You're a victim of office politics. It's sin. My wife died. The Bible says that death comes into the world as a consequence of sin. We've all sinned. And death is the consequence of sin. The wages of sin is death. And that's why in this section here, it talks, when it talks about the shortness of life, it, it talks about it in conjunction with God's wrath. All our days pass away under your wrath. We finish our years with a moan. Our days may come to 70 or 80 if the strength endures, and yet the best of them are but trouble and sorrow, for they quickly pass and we fly away. Death is an outgrowth of sin. It wasn't part of God's original plan for this world. It's not how he intended the world to be from the beginning. So God looks at this world now, the way that it is, the way that it's utterly corrupted by sin, and he thinks about the one that he created. See, he created a wonderful world. He created a perfect world. But this world now is so far off the mark from the one that he created. And it's all because we human beings decided that we could do just a fine job of doing things our way. We didn't have to do things God's way. And now look. Just look. So yes, God is angry. He's angry at what we've done to this world. He's angry about the damage that gets inflicted on people every single day. 
He's angry about broken relationships and people getting ripped off. He's angry about injustice and lying and poverty. He's angry about people getting taken advantage of and other people being neglected and unloved and overlooked. He's angry about people being trapped in their addictions and other people being trapped in their hatred and other people being trapped in their resentment. He's just furious about all of it. Because he loves us. He loves us. And he wanted something so much better for us. And we all carry the blame. Because none of us is perfect. Because we all fall short of God's ideal. We've all added just a little bit more to screwing this world up. We've all said at some point, forget you, God. I'm doing it my way. I'm just going to tell this one little lie here. I'm just going to break my promise this one time because I have discovered it's too hard to keep it. I'm just going to skirt the edges a little bit. And so we've all contributed to screwing the world up just a little bit more. So his anger isn't just directed at those other people, you know, the ones who are really bad, the ones who really deserve it. His anger is directed at you and me too. We, we are consumed by your anger. We are consumed. And terrified by your indignation. You've set our iniquities before you. Our secret sins. In the light of your presence. So you don't know much. And God is angry. And hard truth number three. Your salvation is in God's hands. Look at how Moses addresses God at the end of the psalm. He says, relent. Enough. I give up. Relent, Lord. How long will it be? Have compassion. Satisfy us. Make us glad. Establish the work of our hands for us. He's throwing himself on God's mercy. He understands that his life has been hard and painful and there's nothing he can do to rescue himself from it. Nothing he can do to make it any better. If anyone is going to come through for him, it's going to have to be God because nobody else has the power. And it's in God's hands. And this is a hard one for us because it goes back to that control thing. Right? We act like we know everything because we wish we did. Oh, we wish we did. So that we could be in control. And we like to think that God's not really ever upset with us for anything. We like to think we're always in his good graces, that we can manipulate him into giving us what we want, that we can control him through our good behavior. If I do these things, then God owes me. And we like to think that if there ever is any trouble, then there must be something we can do to fix it. We can pray more or give more or serve more or do more. In other words, we like to think that we can work hard enough to become our own Savior. But we can't. 
So there you go. You don't know much. God is angry. Your salvation rests in the hands of the very one who's angry at you. That's the way life is. We need to accept it and not fight it because there's nothing we can do to change it. You're all dismissed. Have a great day. But actually, there's more. Aren't you glad? Now, I want you to understand that everything that I've said so far is completely true. But there's more. In addition to these hard truths, there also is a thread of hope that runs through this psalm. And and it centers around the observation that life is short alongside the conviction that there has to be more than this. Life is short and hard and painful. And there, there just has to be more than this. There's got to be more. Let me just hit some of the highlights from this psalm to, to show these, how these twin observations run together and run concurrently. Verse 3. God, you turn men back to dust, saying, Return to dust, O sons of men. You sweep men away in the sleep of death. They're like the new grass of the morning. In the morning it springs up new, but by evening it's dry and withered. Verse 9. All our days pass away under your wrath. We finish out our years with a moan. The length of our days is 70 years or 80 if we have the strength. Yet the best of them are but trouble and sorrow, for they quickly pass and we fly away. Verse 12, teach us to number our days aright, that we may gain a heart of wisdom. That's the key. It is the key to the psalm, and it is the exact spot in the psalm where it makes a shift where it begins to make a pivot. See, before verse 12, Moses is basically just complaining or at the very least wallowing in how lousy life is. Life on this planet is sort of a bum deal. That's what he's been saying in so many words. But after verse 12, we get this glimpse that maybe this world isn't all there is. Maybe this life is actually just a shadow of something greater. So verse 15, make us glad for as many days as you have afflicted us, for as many years as we have seen trouble. See, Moses is calling on God to even the score. He's saying, we've had all this trouble and all this sorrow, but, but God, balance it out. Even the score so that, so that the scales are, are equal. But that can't happen in this life. Moses must be looking beyond it to something else. Because in verse 10, we just read it. We see that the best years on earth are but trouble and sorrow. So how would God ever make it up? Where would we ever find 70 or 80 years of joy to make up for the 70 or 80 years of trouble? Now, Moses lived early in Israel's history, about 1,500 years before Jesus. And God had not yet, at this point in history, said anything about life after death or heaven But Moses, knowing the love and the faithfulness of God, reached the only conclusion that can make any sense. If God is who he says he is, then there has to be more than we can see. Moses is making probably the first allusion to heaven in the Bible. 
And what Moses can only guess at at this early point in Israel's history later in Scripture is made much more clear. In fact, Moses' modest prayer that there would be enough joy in heaven to balance out the sorrow that we find on earth, that, that hope and plea gets completely swept away. Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians that we should not lose heart. Though outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day and our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but what is unseen. Because what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. In Romans, he says, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing to the glory that will be revealed in us. Well, that sounds great. How can I experience that? Let's go back to the hard truths. Remember I said if we can accept these hard truths, it will go better for us? Let's look at how that works. Number one, you don't know much. Acknowledge your smallness, your limitedness, your lack of understanding. Especially when your understanding is put next to God's. Admit to God that you don't have the answers, but He does. And submit to Him. Surrender to Him. Give yourself up to the one who is so vastly superior to you. Number two, God is angry. And He's angry about sin. And what's especially important for you to understand is that He's angry about your sin. And I need to understand He's angry about my sin. He hates it. It's nauseating to Him. So don't focus right now on anybody else's sin. That's God's job. He'll take care of it. What you need to do right now is to admit your sin. Admit to God you are sinful at your core. We all are. And acknowledge that God is right in His judgment and condemnation of you. And number three, your salvation is in God's hands. Now, it can be terrifying to realize that your salvation rests in the hands of the very one that's angry at you. Moses says as much in Psalm 90. He says, it is terrifying. We are consumed by your anger and terrified by your indignation. That's absolutely true. But here's the amazing thing. The one who is angry at us is also the one who loves us. And he's angry about our sin, but he's also compassionate toward us for all that we've suffered as a result of sin. Even the suffering that we've brought onto ourselves through our own sin. He hates sin because he desires something so much better for us. 
because he knows that there is life that is really life out there for us if we will just pursue him and come to him and repent of our sin and throw ourselves on his mercy. He's waiting. He's waiting for us to come to him. So he made a way for us to get something better. He came to earth in the form of Jesus and he lived a perfect life, a life free of sin, the kind of life that we should have lived. And he died on the cross and he took the punishment that we should have suffered. So he makes this exchange. We get all of his accomplishments and he gets all of our failures. We get to receive all of his righteousness while he takes all of our sin. We get to claim every one of his achievements. He did them on our behalf. And he takes the rap for our crimes against a holy God. That's the deal he offers. And as a result of that, if we accept the deal, then he will deliver us to a new world when our time is done on this one. He will take us to a world that doesn't have any sin, where there is no sorrow, no injustice, no toil, no loss, no grief, no heartache, no cancer, no broken relationships, no betrayals, no politics. And we will be with him forever. He's made a way for us to still get to experience the world that he intended for us in the first place. Verse 12 is the key. Teach us to number our days aright, that we may gain a heart of wisdom. You know, you have two sets of days. You have your days here on earth, and then you have all the days of eternity. When it says, teach us to number our days rightly, it's not just talking about our earthly life. And we spend so much time focused on this life and the things that we suffer and the things that we go through and the challenges that we have. And we don't think about our other set of days that still lay before us. I want to ask you to use your imagination here. I went to the store and they didn't have an eternal rope. So you're going to have to imagine the rope starting here and going on and on and on and on and on forever. All the way forever and ever and ever and ever. And this part of the rope represents our life here on earth. And this part of the rope represents all the days that still lay out before us. And why do we put so much emphasis here
the hurts that we endure here, the things that we suffer here, planning for retirement. How does that make sense in light of this? If this is our days, then where should our emphasis be? Where should our focus be? Where should our priorities be? Where should our affections be? Teach us to number our days aright that we can gain a heart of wisdom. Now life here, life here is hard and it's brief and it's painful. And that's true no matter how many years you live. At my grandmother's 100th birthday party, my brother asked her how it felt to have lived 100 years. How many of us get that opportunity to reflect on an entire century of life? You know what she said? She said, it has gone very fast. Now, if that's true for her, it's got to be true for everybody. I imagine if you knew that you were going to die tomorrow, you would say that it feels like your life was cut short. I would say that for me. But the end of our life on earth is not the end of life. So here's the life lesson. Life here is hard and it is brief, but eternity is very, 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 very long. So we need to know how to number our days correctly. This life is just a warm-up for the real deal. It's just a taste. And no matter who you are, there's this thing that beats at the core of our being, at the center of our hearts, that says, there has just got to be more than this. There has to be more. And you know why? It's because we were created for more. The Bible says that God has planted eternity in the hearts of men. It's what we were created for. Isn't it strange that this world doesn't feel like home? That we are inherently unsatisfied here and discontent with the way that life is? I mean, we've never known anything different. Never. None of us have. Why do we have all these desires and longings that this world can't satisfy? Every single one of us. It's because we were created for more. Because God always intended for us to have more. And when we screwed it up with sin, He sacrificed Himself so that we could still obtain it. What a great and marvelous God. Don't waste his gift by living for the moment. Live for eternity. Make eternity real in your mind because I promise you it's coming. And you don't want to wait until then to get ready. Live an eternal life starting now.
want to invite the praise team to come up and they're going to help me with a, a song that I wrote. Uh, I wrote this song the week that I turned in my resignation to the church in Michigan. Uh, I was struggling with having to let go of my old life. When Tanya died, I, um, they gave me a four-month leave of absence, and then I continued on for seven more months before, before I realized that I had to step down. And um, it was so difficult because I was doing everything that I could to hold on to it, to hold on to my life, the life that Tanya and I have built together. And I had to learn this lesson. I had to learn how to put my energy and my affections into eternity instead of the circumstances of my life. It was terrifying. I fought against it so hard to hold on to the pieces of my life and what felt like home. And then I had to realize that my home is not here. It's not anywhere here. I will never find it here. That my true home is in God and God alone.